In this episode, we're chatting with artist, creative producer, and co-creator of Namumu for Mothers, Leah Paapa, about how to support mothers and their babies through arts and cultural practice during the first 1,000 days. We'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record today, the Kabi Kabi and Gabi Gabi people. We recognise their continued connection to the land and waters of this beautiful place. We recognise Aboriginal people as the original custodians of this land and acknowledge that they have never ceded sovereignty. We respect all Gabi Gabi elders, ancestors and emerging elders and any First Nations people listening today. And before we start, I just wanted to pop in and say that if you're curious about starting a nature play business or forest school, then you might want to check out our signature online course, Your Wild Business. Now, Wild Business is a business kickstarter program literally like no other. There's nothing else like it out there because what we do is very, very, very niche. It's specifically designed for teachers, forest school leaders, outdoor recce's and early years educators who are ready to leap into the big wide world of business. If you want to take the guesswork out of starting from scratch and more importantly, if you want to avoid the three most common mistakes others have made when they started their nature play business, head to wildlingsforestschool.com forward slash wild dash business and check out our exclusive training to get you started on the right path towards your wild business journey. We will also share with you our proven seed sprout blossom framework that will help you create a nature play business deeply rooted in community values and purpose. So head over to wildlingsforestschool.com forward slash wild dash business to check it out. Welcome to Raising Wildlings, a podcast about parenting, alternative education stepping into the wilderness however that looks with your family each week we'll be interviewing experts that truly inspire us to answer your parenting and education questions we'll also be sharing stories from some incredible families that took the leap and are taking the road less traveled we're your hosts vicky and nikki from wildlings forest school pop in your headphones settle in and join us on this next adventure Hello and welcome to the Raising Wildlings podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Farrell. Today we have the absolute privilege of chatting to Leah Parper, who is an artist, creative producer and mama whose cultural connections to Samoa and the Luceno Nation in Southern California. She's a co-creator of Namumu for Mothers alongside Kuku Yalanji artist Marindi Schreiber. She's the co-creator of Namumu for Mothers alongside Kuku Yalanji artist Marindi Schreiber and is deeply passionate about supporting mothers to curate their babies and their own experiences during the sacred time of the first thousand days by tapping into their ancestral and creative practices. Good morning and welcome to the show, Leah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for this talk. Oh, same. We do our little podcast dream guest list every year and your name was high up there. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's nearly September. We need to start really getting these organized. And I'm just so excited. I think what you're doing is so important, but we're not going to start there. Can you tell, well, actually, no, we will. Can you tell us what you're doing at the moment uh, work-wise and then your journey of how you got here? Because nobody tells it better than the people that have gone through it. Yeah. Well, I call myself a slasher um, (laughs) because um, as an independent artist, I I guess you need to be so many different things. And um, I am currently working on a few different things, but... um, I guess uh, the main project is called Nyamumu, which is a Kukuyalanji word that means for mothers. And uh, Kukuyalanji is the um, cultural connection that my collaborator Marindi Schreiber has, so that's where we got that that language name from. And we are running um, kind of 
arts and cultural practice that supports mums during the first thousand days. So that conception for age two. So that's branched out into these beautiful different um, projects and ideas and collaborations that we couldn't have anticipated when we started. Mm. But I guess that's kind of at the crux of what I do. Um, but um, before all, before Namamore was birthed, I was a um, community arts and cultural development practitioner, arts practitioner, which basically means um, you run arts-based, arts and cultural-based activities and projects for and with community. Mm -hmm. So rather than going into a community and delivering something that you feel that they want or that you need to do, you go into communities and you say, what do you want? What do you need? How can I be of service? And that, um, so I've been doing that for kind of over a decade now, Um, So kind of a creative producer. I also, out of that, um, you know, servicing my communities, which have changed over the years, Mm. um, servicing my communities, I got into quite a lot of like festival event management. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, the ability to be able to write grants and kind of talk and develop stakeholder partnerships, but also then sit down around a fire and talk to community about what their needs. So I've definitely Mm. sat between those worlds and been able to create uh, platforms for people to tell stories. So the beautiful thing about community arts and cultural development is that it's multi-art form. It doesn't matter what the art form is. It's actually about the process, not the outcome, Mm. which I love, 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 and that's to me where the medicine is. Um, and so that took me to running a contemporary Pacific Arts Festival in Melbourne at Footscray Community Arts for several years. Um, I ended up living in a remote community of Buralula in the Northern Territory mm. and helping support them to develop their traditional dance programming and festival there that's still um, up and running. And now I'm based um, in the Yidinji Nation of Cairns where this project has come out of. So it's... Um, you know, my identity's changed and the way I've identified myself professionally has changed from kind of producer to creative producer, you know, now to, yeah. um, you know, living living in the space of an artist and all that entails, um, you know, and that comes with confidence and, and growth. Um, but I think everything led me to here. And when mm. I look back, I see that, you know, all the different bits and pieces of how my, um, my career, I, I started in education, actually, and found in education that in order to engage um, Indigenous and Pacific young people in the western suburbs of Melbourne where I was living, Mm. I kept bringing in elders and artists. And it was all about bringing them back to culture to to get that connection in this really Western framework of the Australian curriculum. And that's where I slowly moved into the arts because I just found the power of it so prolific, whether it was five-year-old kindergartens to the the 17-year-old, you know, VCE students that I was working with. Mm. Um, And so now I've kind of funneled all that learning from, yeah, grants and budget lines and all those kind of... (laughs) All the fun um, stuff. (laughs) Yeah, all the arts administration, which is actually a very creative process to be able to balance a good budget. Um, (laughs) Isn't that the truth? (laughs) uh, You know, oh, yeah. And, um, you know, the relationship building and creating culturally safe spaces Mm. and thinking multi-art form and thinking um, global as well as acting local, all of those things now feed this kind of really intimate project that I'm delivering co-delivering here in Cairns um, called Nyamakul. Oh, yeah. 
How amazing. I, I love hearing. And I find women often, genderizing here, but I'm going to. <laughs> I feel like after we birth and during parenthood, there is this either cracking open and we become, we do, you know, maiden to mother, whatever you want to call it, we do rebirth ourselves as well. But I often find that this conglomeration of all these skills that we pick up seem to come together after then. So can you tell us about Namunu and and what that entails as well? Because I just am so, so grateful that it's out there and can't wait to see it spread. Yeah, well, I mean, you're exactly right. Like it definitely came out of the birthing of my first son. Mm. And, um, you know, I had him, my cultural connections are to Samoa and Tonga from my mother and then um, the Lasenio Nation in Southern California from my father. And so I'm the first generation born in Australia Mm. and, um, you know, like my professional identity, I've always had identity um, as a key part of myself and I think being a person of colour growing up in Australia, like I just every day get asked where am I from? Mm-hmm. And so having to be able to articulate that with complex family histories and relationships and, you know, navigating that as a young adult, a teenager and young adult, and then, you know, now as a mother, it became really clear to me when I gave birth to my son that um, I needed to make sure that he stayed connected to his ancestors and his lands that he wasn't um, anywhere near. And this was all pre-COVID. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> and my, my partner... Yeah, yeah. And my partner's um, Yidinji and from Murray Island. So I knew he'd identify strongly as a First Nations Australian, mm. but I wanted to make sure and I just felt this awesome responsibility for me to make sure that he also f- felt connected to his his maternal line that, you know, that I have. Yeah. And so um, I wasn't sure how to do that. And both my grandmothers are still alive. I'm really oh, lucky. Wow. Um, and so I started thinking in a really pragmatic, practical way of how I could do that. And food is what came to me. So <laughs> I was, yeah. you're cooking it anyway. You're cooking yes. it anyway. Um, it's an everyday part of life. And so I started me and my son on an ancestral diet. Oh, and, wow. you know, I'm very lucky that I have all, you know, and I live in the tropics. So all the taro and cassava and coconut and mango, like it's all here mm. and accessible. Um, but also started looking into, you know, California and, you know, kind of Mexico and what those foods were um, and how I could incorporate them into my um, into my diet. So it was really nice to have a diet that wasn't based on weight loss for the first yeah. time <laughs> in my life as well. It was actually about nourishing myself and nourishing my soul and connecting in an embodied way for me and my son. Mm. Um, but food also became this huge Pandora's box, um, <laughs> politics of food and the history of food, which I had no idea. Mm. And um, part of what I learned was that it was used as a frontier warfare tactic oh, yeah. uh, during first contact around the world. And so with that, um, you know, when you take away people's access to their foods, you take mm. away their health. Um, you also decentralise women as healers mm. um, and uh, nurturers in the communities. Um, but the, the ripple effect from that also is that all that knowledge around birthing gets lost. So all the plants that were needed, the songs that were sung, the apparatus that we use, the plants, like all of that mm. then goes and you find that in settler colonial, um, you know, places like Australia, um, the Americas, um, that that 
is gone or, you know, has been asleep for a long time. And with that comes the rise of, um, you know, a lot of birth trauma, cesareans, you know, postpartum depression, and the places where men haven't interfered in women's reproductive health, like China, South America, Mexico, Africa, that those songs and those stories and those plants and those medicines are still readily available. Mm. Oh, that just gave me goosebumps. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, often in the poorer countries, where um, women are still having to birth in their village. Mm. So the, the need for it is great. But with that comes so much wealth that, you know, you know, however many generations later, like we are directly impacted, you know, my birthing trauma is directly impacted to the fact of those frontier wars that took place so many hundreds of mm. years ago in America. Yeah. And that kind of blew my mind. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and it is, I'm saying... Because it's it's entire cultures, it's entire countries, and you know here it was you, you know like you dig up all the the native yam and native potato, and then we give you flour. You know the colonizers are giving flour and poisoning flour, so it's not just taking away a food source; it's then making an entire people reliant on a food source that can be tampered with and, and used as a weapon. It's just awful. Yeah, it's it's horrific and mm. the impact that it's had on, yeah, like I said, birthing stories and our yeah. postpartum journeys, I just kind of made that connection and that's what allowed me to then start thinking more multi-art form mm. around how to support mums and babies through this time because my world was opening up, the cracking open, like all those things were happening. I was doing the food but then I recognised it's like what are our, what are our children um, playing with when they're not to four months what are they visually you know you have those um high contrast cards of elephants or you know geometric shapes but it's like what are they literally focusing for the first time their eyes on mm. and so I wanted to place um my culture and my partner's culture um at the forefront of curating that experience for my babies it's so beautiful so, yeah and it's so mm. empowering and um, you know, the complexity is in the thinking around it, but I'm using contemporary mediums, you know, I'm using applique and embroidery and, um, you know, quite simple craft techniques, which is also really nice just to have a, something on the go that you can kind of go to and I can teach, but for people to explore their own ancestral connection, like what's important to them, what were their great-great-grandmothers using, whether it's plants or animals or symbols, motifs, designs. Um so, so that's a bit of a tangent, but oh, and a really important tangent because like if we yeah. we don't think about it, and we don't talk about it, we don't know, and we don't understand where where trauma has come from, and we don't understand where this loss of culture and language has come from. We know, but like you said, the depths of the knowledge and the depths of what you've lost and everyone has lost is yeah, it's tragic. Yeah, and I think, you know, obviously until you become a parent or you're in that birthing situation and the vulnerability that goes with that, you don't realise, you know, and in my postpartum journey I was, I just knew it wasn't meant to be like this, the isolation and this feeling and also the joy like falling in love. You don't get to fall in love very often and in your life and to be falling in love while also having all the other kind of things around it I was like it is not meant to be like this Mm. and obviously I didn't have my village or any of those things but what could I do um you know and recognizing there was a lot of intergenerational trauma in my family but that how could I focus on the intergenerational wealth like yes cycles cycles stop with me 
that's a lot of work and it's ongoing. But, um, you know, as the first educator of my child, you know, this all bubbled up to the forefront of what I was going to do. So in the meantime, or kind of around the same time, um, Marindi Schreiber, who's my collaborator, got asked to curate a nought to two-year-old space for the Cairns Children's Festival. And it was all pretty quick sticks and um, we created some woven sets. So that's when we started thinking about woven sensory play. What are our kids playing with? You know, you have the red plastic blocks and the trucks <laughs> and they're all important. They're all important and, you know, my my boys love them. But how else can I be, um, you know, how else can I include cultural design and motifs? So woven mobiles, tummy time blankets, thinking about ancestral foods. We just curated this festival drop-in space. Mm. And Marindy's a singer-songwriter, so we did a lot of lullabies and stories and we had a harpist and a cajon, like percussion, and it was a two-day event. And at the end of it, we all just looked around and went, that was something so special. It was just, and, you know, my partner said, even the white men stayed for hours with <laughs> black women and we just had all these white men hanging around like the dads were uh. comfortable, like the babies were so happy, people came back and we just kind of went, oh, my gosh, what was that? You know, it's not what we anticipated. So we applied for some um, Australia Council funding because I recognise that although we'd curated that space with um, artists who are mothers, mm. that we could actually just teach all of this to mothers themselves, and they could curate their own spaces. And so that's when Nyamamu was born, which means for mothers. And we were successful in the funding and able to start delivering uh, community-based workshops around the Cairns region. Um, so we run in school term. Um, we've been to Mossman. We've been to Yarrabah. We had this grand vision of touring the Cape um, and being these artists in residence, but you know, Marindi has five kids. <laughs> and I had a small child. I was like, who are we kidding? Like, we're not actually going anywhere. <laughs> um, so that was pretty good. Um, and, you need you know, a tour bus, freaking, like a, a rock yeah, star Yeah, we need, a, we need the touring party of 23. It was just like, this is not happening. Um, it's not in the budget line. Um, but also that we have all these communities that are a drive away mm. here, whether we go up to the Tablelands or Mossman or, or Yarrabah, that we have these connections um, to quite remote communities, actually remote and regional communities just where we are. So that's kind of where we had that moment of that really localised, you know, really um, culturally specific, you know, opportunity that this is where we are and this is a community that we're going to service. Oh, that's so important. We, we talk all the time on here. We try and speak to change makers and what we've found is the biggest change is always made in your micro community. You, you know, it's People say you can't change the world, but I wholeheartedly believe you can by making that positive change where you, just where you are in your community. And even if that is, like you said, might not be your home roots or where you were born, it doesn't matter, I don't think, as long as you're looking to make that, um, like you said, the intergenerational wealth. So important. Uh, I would love to talk to you because that just the rock star bus just brought up <laughs> that question of, how do you navigate motherhood and the projects that you're doing and, and how has that changed over the years? We've been having a bit of a thread over the last few podcasts about motherhood and business and the reality of it and trying to paint a really realistic picture of, of the, the things that are hard and the things that are great about being a mother in business. What have you found on your journey? Um, yeah, I think 
and it's a it's a constant struggle mm. and it's really hard and you know I think part of that comes when you become a mother part of that grief around letting go of your old self and I guess for me I, I developed a, a quite a niche experience in remote community festival work mm-hmm. and so I was having these kind of three or four months stints in very remote communities um, and I recognized as soon as that baby was here it's like well I'm not going anywhere like that, like they don't actually pay enough for my partner to come along and be the babysitter, yeah. but I'm not going to be able to live in community the way that I had to have that kind of meaningful engagement that was mm-hmm. at the core of what I did. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there had to be an absolute shift, but also because it was project-based, Marindia, and Marindy has five children, like we just had to be really clear that this project was for mothers by mothers. Mm. And when you're able to do that from the outset, and that's what's really great about projects is that you can they end as well. So you can trial <laughs> something at the end before you set up a whole partnership and the whole big business and, you know, um, you know, which is kind of our next steps. But because it was only for one funding round and we only had one bucket of money, we were like, let's trial this. So we learned a lot along the way. And some of that was things like being in school hours, like thinking about mums who um, have school-aged children. So it needs to be, you know, in that time where they can still pick up their kids. We needed to have extra programming if other um, non-older uh, children were around, Um We did it in school terms and it was identified after a couple of terms that actually the first week of term is not great for mums to come because they're so busy just getting their kids to school and Mm. breaking all the bad habits of holidays (laughs) that they need to get them back and it's just too much. So, you know, it's only little things, but what that means to our participants is care. Mm. You know, and when care is central to our service provision, which is what we're doing, we're being in service. they feel that. So for me, you know, for me personally, that um, looks like, you know, being really mindful of my time because my, you know, both our kids are still at home. And so my partner has them when I'm working. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I say no to a lot of jobs that are interstate because it's just not practical to do. Like, a, you know, and Zoom opened up a whole world that I've been able to tap into and I'm really grateful for actually because, um, it's actually given me more community than taken away. Oh, that's um, nice. Yeah. We miss you at Horizon Fest this year because I know you were booked oh, in to come on the sunny coast. Yeah. Then... Yeah. We tried for a couple of years. Yeah. Bloody, bloody pandemics. But yeah. Hopefully one day when the kids are a bit bigger, yeah. we'll have you here. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's just ever changing as our babies change. You know, we've, we've brought in a couple more mums now to help facilitate. So I got pregnant and had a baby and I was able to step out. We also have different um, roles within. So we like we um, we cater all our workshops with postpartum recipes from around the world. They're all home cook, slow cooker to give examples of like nourishing, you know, uh, recipes and different just flavor profiles. Lee, I just think if you did that in every play group or mother's group around the world, how much of an impact that would make. Just that alone. Oh look, I mean we don't teach them, but we give the um recipe books at the end of the term of all the recipes we've made. Mm. And we just know that 
for most of those mothers, that's the only home-cooked meal they're getting every week that they haven't prepared themselves. Yeah. And they are so grateful. Like they are just so Making me a bit teary because I know how grateful I would have been. And it's just so delicious. And, you know, and you also get to start seeing the threads. Because I'm not uh, First Nations to Australia and I'm Indigenous to other parts, like that global thread and that womanhood story is really important to me. Um Burundi's local to here and we do a lot of work around um, allyship and, you know, connecting to the country that you're birthing your babies on and raising your families on and how important it is to be in relationship with there. But then I guess my kind of areas around that ancestral connection, wherever your ancestors are from. So, um, you know, when you start looking at the foods, you start seeing that, you know, all those recipes are warming they're nutrient-dense, you know, like there's the threads that women have worked out all over the world, obviously, um, to nurture ourselves during this really sacred time. Mm. And to be held by a community and that feel that love in that food and that, like you said, that validation of being heard and listened to and that understanding, like you said, that this is probably the only meal you haven't had to cook here, take it with love. Oh, so powerful. Yeah. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Um, and it's all the things that we wanted. You know, Marindi didn't even know that postpartum was a thing. Her youngest is seven. Um, her oldest is, I think, 21. She didn't even know that that existed. And so we worked out she's owed 200 days of postpartum <laughs> care. That she she's still got 200 meals coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're just like you can go on a cruise somewhere through the Pacific, you know, like have some time out. But it's oh, just wow. so true. You know, and I didn't know postpartum was a thing even when I had my first son. Yeah. And so, you know, my ability to um, rectify and put in place things for my second pregnancy and birth um, also just meant that although I didn't get the birth that I particularly wanted, that I was able to build all this ceremony and creative practice and community around it mm. so it didn't feel so hard when you didn't get the outcome that you wanted. So it's, you know, I, I've had a lot of teachers, um, you know, postpartum healing lodge, Rayanne Madison is an Anishabe um, doula and birth worker and so she worked with me online um, but I also did her eight-week um, immersion course. So she's been a really big, big inspiration to think about arts and culture. They're actually the same thing. How do we incorporate that into every part of our birthing journey from preconception, you know, and beyond, really? Oh, that is so powerful. It's it's bringing back that, I was going to say power, but it's knowledge and the knowledge is the power to women again. I just think, gosh, we've lost so much. And we've lost our way in doing in in that happening, and this just feels this. I don't want to say clawing back. <laughs> it's another we're giving back to to ourselves. Oh, it's magic, just magic. Yeah, and and a big part of what we talk about, like we talk about the rejuvenation, the reclamation, but we also talk about the reimagining. Mm. And so, you know, as contemporary women in 2022, that we are able to um, reimagine for ourselves our cultural practices what's important to us, what are the stories we want to tell, um, and to give ourselves creative and cultural permission to do that because, you know, they, they weren't lost, they were taken. Yes, that's you know, really important. Stolen violently, you know, and um, 
you know, or, or it might just be complex family histories where you don't mm. have that connection or, you know, whatever that story is, mm. why it isn't present. It, it doesn't mean culture doesn't live with the old people, you know, like it, it has to be maintained and, you know, same with basket weaving, you know, I'm a weaver as well and it's like we, baskets won't last forever, they're grass. It's like the, the cultural practice is actually in the transferal of intergenerational knowledge because otherwise that mat will die and it will it will you know get eaten or whatever will happen to it or disintegrate and it'll be gone. But mm. it's not steel, it's not plastic. You know, we have to keep teaching. And so that's been really big for me to kind of go, yes, I have a right to be doing this. Yeah. You know, this is about me and my blended cultural family, like my boys and how I can do that that works using contemporary mediums, using materials that are accessible, whether it's Amazon or going, you know, getting the paperback locally, like that it's all valid and it's all um, it's all okay. Oh, that permission is so powerful, isn't it, to, to, your, to yourself and to other women listening as well. It's, it's make what you need to make and, and, and get the materials how you can get them to do what you need to do. Oh. Yeah, it's so beautiful. I want to touch on um, the intergenerational aspect of Nyamumu as well. How important is that to the programs and and to this passing on of the skills and the stories and whatnot? I mean, it's integral. Uh, we have a budget line called Nana in Residence, so <laughs> oh, where we oh, can I love that. Yeah, you know, it's the elder <laughs> in residence, but it's the Nana. So where we can, oh. we bring elders with us into the space, and that's not always um, depending on what they're doing, but we have that space for them. Um, and then in our programming, like we're always led by our elders. Um, you know, I'm still talk, calling my grandma to find out, you know, recipes or things, you know, and Marindi's really connected into all the mobs here and very well respected. So she's uh, a local girl and, and has those connections. So we stay in touch with them and let them know what we're doing and get guidance on that. And, you know, getting getting our participants, whether Indigenous or non-Indigenous, to think about who their elders are and so that they can start those conversations with their mothers or their grandmothers to find out, you know, what is there or what isn't there. And sometimes it's just knowing the questions. Um, you know, we went out to Yarrabah and we were doing it out there and we had the elders come, all the old ladies were there and they'd just never been asked, mm. you know, like what was their birth story? It was just not, they'd just never been asked, you know, so they really had to think about it. And after a while there's like, oh, yeah, I actually remember when my auntie this and, you know, all these kind of things just started coming up because otherwise it just hadn't been explored. So, yeah. That's it, amazing. Yeah, it's super precious. And, you know, and then focusing on that wealth and recognising that sometimes you ask the questions and there is no answer, like that knowledge isn't there in living history and that that might take some research into it or it might not be there and the grieving that comes with that. Mm, yes. How do you make, and might not be an answer to this, how do you make space for that, you know, without toxic positivity in it as well, uh, to make room for the grief of the loss, again, not the loss, the taking of the knowledge? I mean, I think, I mean, in my experience, most Indigenous peoples live with it every day. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just so much a part of our histories and our stories. Mm. Um and I think that's where the reimagining comes in. Like it's that permission to go, it's okay. You know, some things are actually just asleep. They might not be gone, but it's going to take a bit more work to find it um, and to breathe that life back into it. And, you know, I've been to the um, 
the Melbourne Museum. I went into their Pacifica collection when I was visiting down there and, you know, I asked them if there was anything from the thousand days and they'd never been asked that before either. And there wasn't. And that was because it was, you know, white male anthropologists anthropologists who were going through there who weren't particularly interested in the women let alone the babies. relevant to me so yeah. yeah yeah let alone the babies like absolutely not interested so mm. you know all that stuff is part of the journey I think and just recognizing as part of yeah the ebbs and the flows of motherhood you know like it's precious beautiful moments that sit alongside just the hardest thing you've ever done you know and that's that's all kind of part of this journey as well. Mm, it's a journey of life almost, isn't it, as well? Yeah. 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 What kind of uh, projects have you got to coming up at the moment? I mean, it's it's an interesting time for me because we kind of have normal more boiling along and then I also um, am just exploring um, how I can be of service in different ways, whether that's online. I'm going to be speaking at the Midwifery Conference here in Cairns, a national midwifery conference, and I'm doing the closing plenary. So that's like amazing, that's 500 beautiful. midwives um, oh. to speak to. And we just did the regional health conference um, in Brisbane and did the artistic programming for that. Cool. So it's really interesting that although we're an arts project and we're very clear that we come into this space as artists, because when you think about how many people service the thousand days from obstetricians, G- GPs, midwives, the anaesthetists, you know, like maternal child health, early childhood educators, like there's a lot of people that touch our lives in that time Mm. and still so many people are feeling isolated. Yeah. Falling through those gaps with all that care. And so part of what we were doing was like how can we contribute to this space through arts and cultural practice? And I feel like that's, you know, I spoke at the big anxiety festival which was around, you know, mental health and arts so I feel like the different sectors are starting to kind of see what we're doing quietly over here in the corner and um, are starting to ask about how they can implement that into their own practice. Mm. So um, that and that's really exciting to me because, again, like the, um, like the big touring arts, you know, artists and residents party that, we're, you know, we're only a couple of mums. We are, you know, pretty remote in the grand scheme of Australia. Like it's, you know, 24 hours for us to drive down to Brisbane. Yeah. <laughs> um, with the kids, you know, like out on a couple of days. Um, and so, you know, my thing is really thinking about how I can support other birth workers or people who are working with mums in the thousand days to help that, to help include some of this thinking in a really practical way to their own practice. Mm. So we've done some professional developments like with the Benevolent Society and also with Chopra and their um, child safety team, which is our Indigenous Health Service here. Um, You know, and some of those mums, their babies don't come home from the hospital with them. You know, they're going into care. So just trauma, like horrible, horrible traumatic experiences and thinking about how mothers can still parent their babies and how they can be part of their baby's experience even if they're growing up, particularly with non-Indigenous families. Mm, so it's a, there's a lot to do. There's plenty to do. Yeah, and, I'll say. <laughs> um, you know, and it's cross-sector, which we yeah. always do, but I feel like, um, you know, the other different sectors are starting to recognise us, which is really exciting that we can kind of be part of some of these, these stories for them and support. Mm. Um, uh, itself is developing a contemporary ceremony with the local Yudinji nation here. 
So that was a project that started off pre-COVID as a theatre project. Mm. Um, and then we recognised that probably that wasn't the best time and that we should stay local. Um, and so we're developing a ceremony with them in a series of workshops that's really localised to Yidinji Nation for them to create what they want, basically. That's exciting. It's really exciting. It's really exciting. And, you know, we make our resources. We make the dolls and the balls and the flags. And my partner started making puzzles as well um, because as our, our son's 18 months old, so as his development changes, it's a bit of action research happening. <laughs> so Think cool. about how we can, you know, how we can kind of indigenize his experience as we see him doing it. Yeah. So I've got my partner involved now as well. So, you know, the dream is also to be, um, you know, providing resources to early childcare centres and stuff oh, like yeah. that, places who are there who, who need that representation mm. um, in their classrooms or in their, in their rooms. Oh, there's so much scope for that and so much need for it too. You know, there's a yeah. there's some trying and there's some tokenism and then there's some centres that are doing it really well and embedding, you know, community really well. But, gosh, we're still the resources, like you said, the resources are so hard to find. Not hard to find because there's, they need to be so specific to each community group, yeah, which would be, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, so it's really exciting. And, you know, again, it comes back to that motherhood business. It's like I can't do it all at once as much <laughs> as I'd love to. That, you know, slow and steady, I have to keep, you know, pulling myself back, which allows for the depth and allows for the learning, you know, and everything to integrate a lot better where I would have probably burnt myself out by now. Yeah. <laughs> if I had been pre-child, I would have gone all the way. And then, you know, so this is very much the, the slow and steady burn and, you know, keeping my family centred in all that and our needs mm. as we grow is, you know, it's a it's a good um, reality check. Our children, I swear, is, uh, they're sent to us for many, many reasons, but I, I would have done the same with wildlings. I would have gone gone hard and then gone, all right, I'm puffed, I've had enough now. And despite loving it, would have I think I wouldn't have been able to keep going at the pace that I wanted to go. But we were joking the other day that everything that we think, however long we think it's going to take, my children now are seven and ten, and it still takes three times as long because if you're centering family and you're centering uh, energy, <laughs> not burning out, it, it is. It takes about three times as long as you know for me pre kids anyway. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There's no, there's no hurry. And I had a friend, um, Mama Kin, who's an amazing oh, um, yes. artist and mother, but you know she just told me you just you know, you keep the, keep it burning, you know, just keep the embers burning. And when they go to school or whenever that time is, then you just, you light that match, mm. you know, like you can build in a really slow way and then, and then you strike when it's time. And I know that's what she did um, in her kind of journey um, creatively. And that's just the best thing to hear for me because it gave me permission. It gave me that permission. Yes. It, yeah, it's amazing how that, that permission stuff is, means so much. It does because I think until I've removed myself, because I'm, I was on education as well as was a teacher and I am still a teacher, but not in the traditional system anymore, traditional system, the white system, <laughs> colonial system. Yeah, that was that hustle and that five days a week and you know, working nights and working weekends. And I just, you know, you think that's normal. You think you have to keep that up, I think. And until I saw other women around me slowing down and centering family, yeah, that permission is so important. I think these conversations are so important that 
we can't have it all, but we can centre our families and we can centre our health and really that's all. That's everything. I realise I haven't got you for much longer, but do you have time for some rapid-fire questions to finish up? Sure. Yes. All right. What's your favourite book of all time or what are you currently reading slash listening to or favourite story that you're loving at the moment? Um, my favourite book of all time is Braiding Sweetgrass. Oh, I still haven't read that one. It's on my oh. list. <gasps> Right. Yeah, Robin um, Robin Walmer, I think her name is. I'd have to double-check that. Um, but, you know, she is a botanist and a poet. So the way she talks about the relationship um, for Native Americans and plants is just blew my mind open. And I'm plant-based and was looking mm. a lot at kind of plant-based medicines and foods through all, through all this journey has been plant-based. Um, and so having that articulated so eloquently, but with the science to back it, just I love, love, love. Oh, all right. It's been on my list. I have not heard a bad word about it. Everyone raves about it. And it's on my list of, you know, 20 books that I need to get in the next. I'm going to put that and move it up to number one, I think. Move it up. Move it up. <laughs> what do you do or where do you go to reset after a rough day? Um, if I can, it's a freshwater swimming. Mm. Definitely, you know, we have some beautiful creeks here or go for a walk. Um, yeah, and sometimes it might just be a quick cup of tea, depending on the time, <laughs> which I have very, you know, I have an 18-month-old and a five-year-old. So <laughs> You say um, a quick cup of cold tea? Or? <laughs> yeah, quick, quick, quick cup of cold tea. I always give new mothers a like a flask, oh, you know, yeah. uh, a thermo cup, and they're like, why do I need this? It's like, you'll see. You'll see. <laughs> I have seen and heard and I'm validating your future. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so good. Oh, as a past educator, uh, well, not past, you're still educating, you're still in that sphere, what would you change about the colonial education system? Oh, so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, So, I mean, so much. I mean, you know. My, tearing I'm, it down and burning and starting again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the pressure that they put on kids. Like I was I was in, still in school when Naplin first came out and I just saw I was teaching cultural studies, so I was outside of it. But the pressure from the kids, the parents, the, the teachers who genuinely loved their kids but were so time poor, it was just phenomenal what that created. Mm. Um, you know, and then just personally, like my niece, um, two of my nieces are kind of tweens now and are just sleeping in a lot more and just needing that sleep. And I remember hearing a long time ago, like there, there's a time where school should start at 10 yeah. for the 14, the 12 to 14 or whatever that is, you know, and recognising that they don't. So many arguments in the house around getting kids to school because biologically it's they need to be resting, mm. um, you know, which all just says to me, um, you know, economic output. Yeah, and it's not, not centering, centering the child. child. Yeah. You know, it, it's all you know, it's all preparing um, them to be economic outputs in our society. So it's yeah, you know, school is next year. We kept our five year old back a year, mm, uh, and you know, we're at that conundrum now of what do we do with him next year? With, yeah, homeschool <laughs> and how we do that. I mean, we're definitely very interested and in, in working through like how that can be possible for us. Oh, if you've got. Any questions? Uh, we we unschool our boys because of many, many, many reasons. But yeah, please, if you want any ask any questions, please feel free because I just think Thanks. I, I will take you up on that for sure. Yeah, yeah, particularly I think for any you know anyone that 
doesn't fit that colonial system and that could be whether that's you know additional needs whether that's you know needing to be on country more whether that's just trying to have any sort of cultural practices in knowledge embedded I think homeschool's so good for that <laughs> yeah yeah mm. Um, funny you were saying about economic output. We've got a school here. Here's my rapid fire questions and me gas bagging. <laughs> they the school is so big that they split the junior, secondary, and um, senior levels in half, and they've done a split timetable. Which theoretic, theoretically, I was like, oh, fantastic! They're going to let the seniors sleep in because they need to sleep in. No, no, no. They've made the seniors start at seven a.m. They need to be at school by seven so that they can then go and do their work and work experience after school. So they're now doing more than a full day's work. Oh, I just it makes me so angry. Like you said, it's yeah. not child-centered yeah. at all. And the homework that comes home with the preps. Ugh. It's like when is the opportunity, you know, their preps, it's like when is the opportunity for parents to be the teachers? Yeah. And all you're trying to do is get them through. Like it just it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. It really doesn't. Oof. Yeah, no good. <laughs> Finally, on a positive note, where can we find out more about your work and do you have any, oh, we've kind of spoke about it. If you've got any other upcoming projects or things that you'd like, love to fill us in about, we'd love to hear it. Yeah, um, I mean, my I'm kind of just on Instagram mostly. So my um, handle, whatever it's called, is just Leah Papa uh, without the apostrophes. And Namumoo, N-G-A-M-U-M-U, also has um, Instagram and Facebook and Namumoo.com. So that's the main places to find me. Um, but, yeah, everything, you know, things are just bubbling away in a really kind of beautiful way and, you know, trying to develop partnerships so that we don't have to apply for grants all the time and think about sustainability. Like it's all part of that, you know, we only want to work two or three days a week anyway because we have families. So it's like how do we generate income from, you know, the three or four mothers that are in our project so that we can be there for our kids and also, um, you know, earn a living and be of service to the community. It's a it's a tricky one, but we're, we're getting there. Oh, you'll do it. You'll do it. It's such beautiful, important, grounding, like you said, community central work and I just... Can't wait to see it just grow and grow and, and the impact and the ripple effects of what you're doing is just incredible. The community-centred work and where you're going with that, I just, I'm so excited for it. I'm so excited for this next generation of children that are having these experiences from birth again that it's it feels like we're coming back and, and reclaiming and, oh, just excited for the next generation of children coming through and the changes that they'll make because they've been empowered with that knowledge so thank you thank you for all the work that you do thank you for coming on today and can't wait to watch all of your projects grow so appreciate it thank you so much thanks for having me chatting to people like leah as you can tell obviously really excites me it gives me such hope for the future and our future generations that we're bringing this cultural and ancestral knowledge back to our First Nations people. Thank you to Leah and Marindi for bringing this work, such important work to Cairns and to Australia now globally as well. We can't wait to see where you go with this and the impact that it's going to have on our future generations. If you felt the goosebumps, I always think that when you get goosebumps that that's the quote of the podcast. So 
If you can think where you got the goosebumps or where you went, yes, please feel free to share because this podcast is all about chatting to change makers and change makers can't make change if people don't know about their work. It is so important that we get this work out, that we get this knowledge out to women in our communities. And if you want to be an ally, then an easy way that you can do this is to help promote Leah's work. Get Namumu for mothers out into the world. So if you can share Leah's website, if you can share Namumu, if you can promote this podcast into anyone's hands that you think will help get them some funding, will just help get the word and get mothers to these programs, then that's how we get these ripple effects to work. So thank you so much for listening today. And until next week, for all the mothers and all the parents out there, stay wild.